Well, uh, I am Gavin Breeden. Thank you to the pastors and elders for the opportunity to, um, to preach tonight. I thought it might be appropriate to give a very brief introduction of myself. I'm the new RUF guy at uh, Pitt starting this summer and this fall. Um, prior to coming, moving to Pittsburgh a month ago, I was an RUF minister at a university in Tennessee called Tennessee Tech for seven years. Uh, and prior to that, I was in Mississippi as an assistant pastor for four years at a PCA church. So I've been doing the ministry thing and the campus ministry thing for a little while, but um, just keep moving for farther and farther north. And uh, glad to be here in Pittsburgh. My family, uh, Shalane is my wife. We have three kids, Addie Pearl, Miles, and Stella. We're, we moved here a month ago tomorrow and have been loving Pittsburgh and are very, uh, been loving City Reformed. And so very glad to be here among you. This evening, we're going to take a look at a, a minor story in the life of King David. Uh, it's going to require a little bit of background before I read the text, so I hope that you'll just bear with me. We're kind of doing the rest of the story of this very minor figure in uh, David's life. Our focus is going to be on a man named Mephibosheth. Uh, so if any of you are expecting a child soon, consider Mephibosheth, maybe. maybe. Um, Mephibosheth was the son of Jonathan. Jonathan, who, would, who had been the best friend of King David when they were young men, Jonathan and David were best friends. Jonathan's father was King Saul, was David's predecessor in, uh, on the throne. King Saul had tried many times to kill David. Uh, he perceived David to be a threat to his throne, to his dynasty. And uh, back in 2 Samuel chapter 9, uh, after both Saul and Jonathan had, had been killed in battle, David has become king. Uh, God has established this really important covenant with David in, in chapter 7 of 2 Samuel. And David, David finds Mephibosheth and summons him to the, to the palace in order to show covenant love to him. Uh, steadfast love, the steadfast love, the chesed, the Hebrew word there, chesed of, of God, to show this gracious love to Mephibosheth. He had received this gracious love from God. He wants to show it to the last remaining uh, member of Saul's household, both because of God, the love that God had shown to David, but also because of the covenant promise that he had made to Jonathan, his best friend. And here's, here's how 2 Samuel 9 ends. It ends with these words. It's not in your bulletin, but it says this, Then the king David called Ziba, Saul's servant and said to him, all that belonged to Saul and all, the how, all of his house I have given to your master's grandson. That's Mephibosheth. And Ziba, you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that, the, that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. So here we have the scene. Mephibosheth, this, this man who is who's lame in his feet. He, David has given all of the land that belonged to his grandfather Saul, has been given to him. He's ordered Saul's servant Ziba to care for the land on Mephibosheth's behalf. But Mephibosheth, he sits at the king's table like one of his sons. And when we get to our passage tonight, chapter, we're mostly going to focus on 2 Samuel 19, but I wanted to give 16 there as a little bit of context. As we get to these chapters, these are many years later. A lot has happened. David has committed adultery with Bathsheba. He is, David's had Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, murdered. 
And now David's home and his kingdom are in turmoil. And David's son Absalom, just as Pastor Joseph mentioned this morning at the end of his sermon, David's son Absalom is challenging David for the throne. And Absalom has gathered an army and has swayed many people in Israel to the point that David must flee Jerusalem for safety. And so we pick up in 2 Samuel 16, David and some of those who are loyal to him are hiding out on the Mount of Olives. And David's servant Ziba arrives with provisions, but without Mephibosheth. So let's look at this first uh, passage here in the bulletin. 2 Samuel 16, 1-4. This is God's word for us. When David had passed a little beyond the summit, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him with a couple of donkeys saddled, bearing 200 loaves of bread, 100 bunches of raisins, 100 of summer fruits, and a skin of wine. And the king said to Ziba, why have you brought these? Ziba answered, the donkeys are for your king's household to ride on. The bread and summer fruit for the young men to eat, the wine for those who faint in the wilderness to drink. And the king said, and where is your master's son? Referring to Mephibosheth. David said to the king, behold, he remains in Jerusalem. For he said, today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. Then the king said to Ziba, behold, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. And Ziba said, I pay homage let me ever find favor in your sight, my Lord, the King. Now let's fast forward to 2 Samuel 19. By this point, the circumstances have changed. Absalom has been killed, as, as Pastor Joseph explained to us this morning. His rebellion has been thwarted. David has returned to Jerusalem and returned to his throne. And Mephibosheth comes out to meet David. So let's pick up in, in, in uh, 2 Samuel 19, verse 24. And Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. And he had neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he came back in safety. And when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said to him, Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? He answered, My lord, O king, my servant deceived me. For your servant said to him, I will saddle a donkey for myself, that I may ride on it and go with the king." For your servant is lame. He has slandered your servant to my lord the king. But my lord the king is like the angel of God. Do therefore what seems good to you. For all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my lord the king. But you set your servant among those who eat at your table. What further right have I then to cry to the king? And the king said to him, Why speak any more of your affairs? I have decided... You and Ziba shall divide the land. And Mephibosheth said to the king, Oh, let him take it all, since my lord the king has come home safely. This is the word of the Lord. Many of you, I'm sure, are familiar with the term PTSD, the acronym PTSD, which stands for post-traumatic stress disorder. It's Uh, a condition that's defined by the American Psychiatric Association as a psychiatric disorder that may occur in people who have experienced or witnessed a traumatic event, such as a natural disaster, a serious accident, a terrorist attack, war or combat, or or many similar events. And it's something that we, you know, we see it depicted often in in war films. We see it, uh, we hear about it from veterans. We hear about it from survivors of natural disasters and other tragedies. And the men and women who struggle with PTSD have experienced something that's so awful, something so terrible and traumatizing, 
that it can negatively impact them for years and years to come after the event. And as I, as I read the Bible, as I think about the life of Mephibosheth, it makes me wonder, is there an opposite of PTSD? Is it possible for something so good to happen to you that it can positively shape you and affect you for years and years to come? Certainly, that seems to be what has happened in the life of Mephibosheth, right? In 2 Samuel 9, he receives this incredible act of loving kindness from King David, this amazing generosity, and Mephibosheth is never the same after that. To the best of my calculations, the events of 2 Samuel 19, this conversation that we just read between David and Mephibosheth, this conversation is taking place a little more than 20 years after David first invited Mephibosheth to come into the palace and to come and sit at his table. And yet we see Mephibosheth in this passage is still so joyful and so humble and so devoted to King David as if it's as if this has only happened a mere matter of days ago. He never got over it. It's like the opposite of PTSD. It's maybe something we could call post-grace love syndrome. A, a powerful experience of grace that produces love in the recipient. And as we take a closer look at this story this evening for just a few minutes, perhaps there's a lesson here for those of us who are believers in Jesus because we have been recipients of this incredible, radical grace from Jesus. And so as we think about the story tonight, I hope that we will consider our own hearts and our own lives and that we will ask, has God's kindness impacted me in the same way that David's kindness impacted Mephibosheth. There's two symptoms of post-grace love syndrome that I want to draw to your attention tonight from this passage. Number one, that, that grace-shaped hearts turn away from self. And number two, that grace-shaped hearts never forget. Okay, so let's take each of those. Grace-shaped hearts turn away from self. As soon as we hear, in, in chapter 19, as soon as we hear how Mephibosheth is physically described, it brings Ziba's story from chapter 16 into much doubt, doesn't it? We don't know how long David has been away from Jerusalem, but it has been some days, it has been some weeks at least, and Mephibosheth has not taken care of himself. He's not taken care of his feet, he has not trimmed his beard, he hasn't washed his clothes since the day that David fled the city. Mephibosheth has clearly been in some sort of mourning. He has denied himself the comforts of the palace. He has denied himself basic cleanliness out of his loyalty to King David while David is away from his throne. I love how one commentator wrote that toenails and facial hair and dirty clothes were the sacraments of Mephibosheth's faithfulness. And David immediately begins to question Mephibosheth about Ziba's story, right? In verse 25, He's asking him, why didn't you come with me when we left? Like, we all left. Me and the folks who were loyal to me left the palace. Why didn't you come, Mephibosheth? And Mephibosheth informs the king what some of you already may be suspecting, that Ziba had betrayed him, that Ziba had left him behind in Jerusalem. Ziba had slandered him to King David. And given that Mephibosheth is lame in his feet, he was unable to get himself out of the city. And perhaps taking in the sight of, of Mephibosheth there, perhaps David starts to realize that he may have acted a bit too hastily back in chapter 16 by immediately giving all of Mephibosheth's property to Ziba. 
But rather than make another complete 180, uh, he, he realizes, David realizes it's Ziba's word versus Mephibosheth's word. One of them is lying. And so he just decides to really offer grace to both of them and says, fine, just split the land. Like, we don't have time. There's more pressing matters than to sort of resolve who's telling the truth here. You two just split the land between you. All that had belonged to King Saul. But it should be clear that for Mephibosheth, it's never been about David's stuff. It's never been about the land. It's never been about the wealth or the power or the prestige. And this is what post-grace love syndrome looks like. It looks like selflessness. Ziba has lied. Ziba has betrayed. Ziba has slandered. Ziba has deceived. And he has ended up with half of Mephibosheth's stuff. Half of the property. And I bet he felt pretty good at the end of the day. But in reality, he has lost. Because Ziba doesn't have the joy and the humility that come from having a heart changed by grace and love that are undeserved. Ziba has earned his ill-gotten gains, but, but he has not won much in the, very, in the grand scheme of things. He knows how to lie and he knows how to cheat his way to the prize, but he knows little of love and of mercy and of grace. The Bible tells us that after Adam and Eve sinned in, in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3, that all of humanity, all of us, we're wired like Ziba. Uh, I love how the great poet W.H. Auden wrote, the desires of the heart are as crooked as corkscrews. Our hearts are bent and crooked and twisted. Our desires and love are turned inward towards ourselves. We want what we, what we want, and we're willing to step on whoever it takes to get what we want. It's easy and tempting to move through life that way, to move through work, to move through school, to move through church even, like Ziba, looking out only for ourselves, concerned only with how things are going to affect me, doing whatever is necessary to benefit myself. And this is why the grace of God is so good. One reason. It's so good and so beautiful in our lives because the grace of God, it changes us from the inside out. It takes our hearts that are dark and crooked as corkscrews and, and sinful and it changes the, and, and it transforms them and it turns them away from ourselves and redirects them towards God and towards others. It's like in the classic Disney film, The Beauty and the Beast, a movie that our family enjoys a lot. The selfish and cruel prince is cursed by this enchantress and he is turned into a beast so that his outward appearance matches his inward nature, who he really is. He's a beast. And the only thing that can transform his beastly outer nature is for his heart to be changed first. He must learn to receive and give love to be transformed back into a human the only thing that can change our broken and sinful hearts is the gracious love of Jesus. And just as the beast is eventually transformed by love back into a handsome prince, the Bible promises that all of those who are in Christ become new creations. All, that, that our sinful hearts of stone are replaced with hearts of flesh. So if a grace-shaped heart is turned away from self, then where, to where is it turned? It is directed towards the grace giver. Notice that when David splits the land between the two men, 
Notice, notice Mephibosheth's response in verse 30. He says, Oh, let Ziba take it all, since my lord the king has come safely home. Mephibosheth does not care about the land. He doesn't care about himself. He only cares about David. I'm so glad the king is safely home. That's all that matters to me. Right? All he cares about is David, the one who has shown him this, this lavish, gracious love. Receiving grace, it turns your heart away from self and it knits your heart to the one who has given you grace. And this is why in the Christian life, as Jesus invites us to receive and rest in his love and in his grace, he also invites us into a life of self-denial. These two things go hand in hand. He invites us to rest in him, but he invites us also to to a life of self-sacrifice. He invites us, he calls us to die to ourselves every day, to take up our crosses and to follow him in obedience. And we follow him in loving God and loving our neighbor just as we love ourselves. And so what would that look like in your life and in my life this week? Maybe it looks like in your workplace, in your neighborhood, in your home, not getting involved in the, in the drama, not getting involved in the gossip, um, but instead seeking to know how to better love and serve others, even to serve those who feel like your enemies, that coworker who feels like an enemy, that person in the neighborhood who feels like an enemy. What does it look like to love them as you love yourself? Maybe to follow Jesus in this way looks like saying no to your sinful sexual desires and, and seeing and realizing that Jesus is more satisfying. Maybe it looks like spending less money on yourself and, and giving more to those who are in need, giving more to the work of God's kingdom. Maybe it looks like taking a little bit less time for our leisure and a little more time to pray for those who are suffering, to pray for our brothers and sisters around the world uh, who are living in, in uh Persecuted, or who are persecuted and living in, in uh, fear in other countries where um, following Jesus is not easy or even illegal. Kids, there's a few kids here tonight. Children, perhaps following Jesus for you this week might look like sharing books and toys with your brothers and sisters. Perhaps following Jesus might look like not complaining when you don't get what you want. That one, I think, applies to us adults as well. Um, not complaining when we don't get what we want. Jesus' call to take up our cross and to follow him is never easy, but it can begin to feel natural only to those who have known and experienced the grace of Jesus. To, To those who have been adopted into God's family, who have been adopted into the king's family as his sons and his daughters, those of us who know that we were enemies far off and we have been brought near to God by the work of Jesus, that we have been made to sit at the king's table, those of us like Mephibosheth, uh, it can begin to feel normal and natural to deny ourselves when we understand the depths of the love and the grace that we've received from God through Christ. So grace turns our heart away from ourselves towards the grace giver, but grace, uh, our second and final point tonight briefly, grace-shaped hearts never forget. Grace-shaped hearts never forget. Did you notice that as Mephibosheth is answering David's question, as he's giving his defense, in the middle of it, he sort of stops talking about Ziba altogether and starts rehashing the story of David's kindness to him. 
Did you notice that? Look with me at verses 27 and 28. He's saying, he's saying, Ziba has slandered your servant to my lord the king, but my lord the king is like the angel of God. Do therefore what seems good to you. For all my father's house were but men doomed to death before the lord my king, but you set your servant among those who eat at your table. What further right have I then to cry to the king? It's been 20 years and Mephibosheth still can't believe it. He still can't get over the kindness that David has shown to him. Remember that Mephibosheth was the grandson of the previous king, King Saul. King Saul who had tried to kill David many, many times. And in the ancient world, when you became king, sort of the common practice, as brutal as it sounds to us today, the common practice in the ancient world was you become king, you sort of, you wipe out the descendants, all the descendants of the previous king. But David does something different and something radical. And he brings Mephibosheth into the palace and restores to him the land of his family and gives him servants to work the land for him. And he sits him at his table like one of his sons. If you go back and read 2 Samuel 9, which I've referred to many times tonight, if you go back and read that short chapter, it's only 13 verses long. Now it'd be great to read tonight before bed. Um, three times in that passage, we are told that Mephibosheth would sit at the king's table. The writer of 2 Samuel wants to really impress upon us, the reader, that this is a big deal. This is huge. That, that this, and it's clearly a big deal to Mephibosheth. It's 20 years later and he's still talking about it. He can't believe it. He's saying, I should have been doomed to death before you. And you brought me to sit at your table. Me, Mephibosheth, who's been lame in my feet since childhood. Second uh, Samuel 9 tells us that he was hiding out before David summoned him. He was hiding out in the land of Lodabar, which literally means the land of no pasture. He's in no man's land. And he's saying, you brought me to sit at your table with your children. And you almost get the impression that Mephibosheth has been telling the story to anyone who would listen in the last 20 years, right? Like, you know, you run into Mephibosheth, you know, anywhere in the palace. And he's like, did you know that, you know, the king David invited me to sit at his table? And these people are probably like, oh gosh, here he goes again. Please stop telling the story. But that's what, that's, Mephibosheth can't get over it. He can't believe it. I was a dead man walking. I was living in no man's land. And the king brought me to sit at his table. Have you ever heard anything like that? Can you believe that? He never forgot about it and he never got over it. And that's what grace does to us. That's what it's supposed to do to us. It gets a hold of us and it changes us. And we're never the same after that. One of my spiritual heroes is uh, the pastor and hymn writer John Newton. And he was an Englishman and he was an African slave trader who lived in the 1700s but he was never the same after he met Jesus. He became an Anglican minister and a hymn writer, and he became an abolitionist who helped bring an end to the slave trade in England. He wrote many famous hymns, including Amazing Grace, maybe the most famous hymn in the English language. He never got over the grace that he received in Jesus. He had a grace-shaped heart that never forgot. And there's these great stories of how John Newton continued to pastor into his old age, probably long, probably uh, 
you know, years after he needed to get out of the pulpit, um, he was confused and would often get lost. Um, and there's these great stories about how he never forgot about what Jesus had done for him. Once there was a time someone suggested to him, hey, listen, maybe John, Pastor John, maybe it's time to retire, right? You're getting a little confused up in the pulpit. Maybe it's time to, to, to lay it down and, and to step aside. And here's what John Newton said. He said, I cannot stop. He said, what? Shall the old African blasphemer stop while he can speak? There was another occasion as John Newton was in his early 80s. He told a friend of his this. He said, my memory is gone, but I remember two things, that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. And Newton even uh, did something a little unusual. He wrote his own epitaph uh, for his own gravestone. And here's what it reads. It reads, John Newton, clerk, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves in Christ, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. John Newton never got over the grace that he received from Jesus. He never forgot it. Even as his mind failed, he couldn't stop talking about Jesus He couldn't forget what Jesus had done for him, that a sinner like him had been forgiven of some heinous things, that he had been pardoned, that he had been washed, that he had been made new, he had been adopted, that he was adopted as a a child of God, that he was brought into the kingdom and into the family of God, not by anything that he had done, but purely by the grace, grace alone through faith in Christ alone. That's what post-grace love syndrome looks like. That's a heart and a life that have been transformed and changed by the grace of Jesus. A heart that has been changed and turned away from self and knitted together to uh, to God. Uh, A heart turned towards God and turned towards other. A heart that never forgets. So if you are a Christian tonight, let me close by asking, how is your memory? Have we forgotten the goodness and the sweetness and the kindness of Jesus? Have we forgotten what it was like that moment you first believed? Or maybe, that, maybe you became a believer in childhood. That moment when you first really understood the depths of, of the good gift that you had received in Christ. How sweet it seemed. How, how too good to be true it seemed. Do you remember how that felt? How could someone like me receive something this good? Today is a good day to remember. And if we're honest, it can be be easy to forget sometimes. And we need to be reminded, which is why we gather every week on Sunday. We gather at at the beginning of the week to remember, to rehearse the story, to remember the story, the grace and the goodness that Jesus freely gives to us. And each Sunday we are reminded again of the greatest and truest and most fundamental story of this universe, which is that Jesus invites sinners and outsiders to come to him and be saved, to become children and insiders with God. Jesus invites us to come and sit at the king's table and to be fed and to be filled, that our hearts would be turned away from ourselves and knit to Jesus, that our hearts would be less prone to forget and wander away from him. Maybe you're here tonight and you've never experienced that grace that Jesus offers. 
This evening, Jesus invites you. He invites the lost and the weary to be forgiven, to be made whole, to be made new. He invites you to come to him and have your heart of stone replaced with a heart of flesh. He, he invites forgetful Christians to come to him to remember how good and how sweet it is it was when we first experienced that grace for ourselves, that we would never get tired of telling that story to others. He invites the hungry and the thirsty to come to him, to come and sit at his table, to come and sit at the king's table like a son or a daughter, to come and be fed and be satisfied in Jesus alone. Amen. Let me pray for us.